Hey, good morning. Gosh, you guys are amazing. Hey, everybody stand up because I always love praying before bringing the word. How are you today? So you're not the NFL nuts, right, in here? You, you, you come to the later service because you're like, hey, I enjoy sleeping in, having a little coffee with the wife or tea if that's what you do or whatever else. But listen, I'm so delighted to be here with you. It's been amazing. Um, I just, I'm so thankful for what God is doing in this church. I'm so thankful that God has sent Jared and Devette to this valley. Let me tell you something. You need to be grateful. Are you grateful for your pastors? Come on. I mean, really mean it. Are you grateful? There you go. And you know, I, I, I also have so much respect for uh, Wayman and for you, Kimberly. You know, I, I preach for them out in Joplin, Missouri. And I just looked at them at the restaurant last night and to say, for you to come and support and be by the side of your brother, wow, that just speaks volumes and volumes and volumes of this family. So let me tell you something, you're in a great place. And I'm so glad God sent this family here to this valley. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, as Pastor said, Uncle John is in the house. Okay. Get rid of that guest speaker thing. I know a lot of you, how many of you were not in the service last night? Let me see your hands. You were not. So you need to meet my family, okay? So let me introduce my family to you. Here's a recent snapshot, and this is my beautiful family who hopefully will come up on the screen shortly. There they are. That is my gorgeous wife of 32 years of marriage. I told Lisa a few months ago, baby, if you were single, I would be so on your trail. And so my oldest son and his wife are on the left. Addison is the CEO of Messenger International. The three boys on the right are all available. Austin is 25, and he is the director of marketing for Messenger International. Alec is in college at University of Colorado. Arden, my youngest, just got done interning at Wave Church in Virginia Beach and is now working for us full-time. He's my full-time travel assistant, and um, he is amazing. So he's actually here. Be nice to him. I better be nice to him because he's running my PowerPoint. And then the two little ones are my G-babies. That's the nice word for grandchildren, okay, because I am way too young to be grandpa, so I'm G-daddy, and G for short. That's Asher and Sophia. They are absolutely beautiful, and Sophia, oh my gosh, she has her little, oh golly, she's got me wrapped around her little finger. So anyway, she's the first girl born in our entire family, I mean Toscano or Bavir, since 1967. So you better believe she's celebrated. And then we have Lizzie Hope who just came along. And so now we got two girls. Everybody's so happy we finally have girls in our family. So there we go. That's my family. The more I love them, the more I realize how much God loves us. Can you say amen? Because we're his family. Amen? Now, I guess I'm just rushing because I know what God's put in my heart to bring to you. I preached it in the first service. I got to bring it to you in this service. Because let me tell you something. If there's one thing I'm so grateful for that God has instilled in my life, it is what I'm about to share with you. I mean, yes, the fact that Jesus Christ is my Lord, Master, and Savior. Yes, that's numero uno. Nothing touches that. But I'm saying as far as the truth of the way we live and serve God, this changed my life. This protected my life. If, if I looked at you and said, how many of you want to know the key to protection, the key to integrity, the key to abundance? the key to riches, the key to walking in the presence of God. How many of you would go, I want to know that? Okay, I don't know about you, but I would say I want to know that. That's what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, okay? And I really want you to listen, and I re or I should say this afternoon, I really want you to not just sit here and take casually what's going to be said today. I want you to drink it in, and I want you to say, God, make it a part of my life. 
and you'll understand why when I'm done with it, okay? So let's pray and let's really believe God that he's going to impact and change our lives forever today. Can we do that? So Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, this is the final service I get to do at Higher Dimension this year. But Lord, I know you always save the best, or Higher Vision, you always save, got to get the name right, Father. So you always save the best for last. I'm asking that you would just double up on the anointing in this service. I'm asking, Lord God, that men and women's eyes, that our eyes would be opened up to see, to hear the word of the living God. Make Jesus more clear to us than ever before by your spirit. Now, Holy Spirit, I'm so grateful for your assistance. I publicly acknowledge I can say or do nothing apart from you. I declare your kingdoms come. Therefore, your will shall be done within us today on earth as it is in heaven. And for this, I give you all the honor and the praise and the thanksgiving. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody that agrees shouts. Come on, give God praise for what he's going to do. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I'm going to open up today with a scripture that has become probably my favorite scripture in the New Testament. And that is James chapter 4, verse 8. So, James writes this. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, I want you to say this with me. Draw near to God, and he will then draw near to, you, to me. So, who draws first? Okay, now, let me, let me, let me like, break the culture barrier here, all right? Because I'm from another place, another land. It's called Colorado. Where I come from, it's rude not to answer a question if you're asked. Is it the same here in Southern California? Some of you are getting this. Some of you are, need another Starbucks right now. Okay, if I ask a question, will you answer? Thank you. Because I just don't do good with quiet Catholic services, because I was raised Catholic, and we weren't allowed to even whisper, okay? So I like participation because I've learned participators get so much more than spectators. So I will ask questions. Feel free to respond, okay? So who draws first? We do. Do you realize what's being said here? There's something that we do, we initiate, that literally causes the one who weighed every drop of water on this planet in the palm of his hands to come near me. Now, I don't know about you, but that really excites me. So what James is basically saying here is you are the one that determines the level of your relationship with God, not God. Let me say that again. You're the one that determines how close you're going to be with God, not God. See, let me tell you why I'm saying this, because... Way back in our minds, a lot of us have this little notion that God has these special ones. They're the ones that are born with like stars over their cribs, right? People like Mother Teresa or Roberts, you know, uh, Billy Graham. No, these people are close because they chose to be close. You have to understand, some of the people that I've met in my life, the closest ones to God are some of them you're never going to see behind pulpits. They're not, they're not platform ministers. So here's the situation. God is saying you get to choose how close you get to be with me. You get to choose the level of our relationship. You get to choose it. It's your free choice. 
Now, if you want to know what he wants, I'm going to share it with you. He's passionate about being close with you. He wants to be close to you. You know, you're sitting there like, well, maybe I'd be one of the favorite ones and I'll get to get close. No, you've got to understand, he wants, he is hoping that you'll let him into your life. In fact, look at verse 5. It really makes it clear. It says, or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. He yearns for you. What does he yearn for? He yearns for your fellowship. I mean, when I think of God yearning for my fellowship, do you know what I think of? I think of what David says in Psalm 139, verse 16. David said this. He said, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They are innumerable. I can't even count them. They outnumber every grain of sand that's on this planet. Now, I want you to think about every grain of sand that's on this planet. Every beach, every desert, every golf course. That's a lot of sand. Now, to give you an example of how much that is, if I think about all the thoughts that I've had about Lisa in the past 32 years of marriage, and they've been a lot, I wouldn't get a shoebox full of sand. Because scientists tell us one cubic foot of beach One cubic foot of beach is basically about this much. There's 1.8 billion grains of sand in one cubic foot of beach. Now, we all have been around exaggerators. Do you know what I mean by exaggerating? You know, it's like the guy that comes up with the self-made up pole. Do you know that 90% of men hate chick flicks? Where did you get that from? Okay, I am a man. I like chick flicks. Okay, so... I think you're making this up because you're trying to, but exaggerate your point, overstate your point. How many of you know exaggeration is a lie? You didn't know that. Now you do. God can't lie. I want you to really think with me through this. Now, logically think through this. God can't lie. Because if he lies, he has to come under the father of lies. Satan. And that's never going to happen. So if God says, my thoughts about you personally outnumber every grain of sand that's on this planet, do you understand how much he thinks about you? I want you to think about this. Now, you don't think a lot about somebody you don't want to be close to. You think a lot about somebody you do want to be close to. So do you see how much he yearns for you? Now here's the problem. In all my travels, I would discover there are a lot of people in churches. They're genuinely children of God, but they're not close. They don't have an intimate relationship with God. Why is that? If God is so passionate about being close with you, why isn't everybody like in this amazing intimate relationship? Because let's just be honest. Let's just put the cards on the table right now. There's some frustrated believers. Why? Well, the answer's found in a certain heart condition. And this heart condition has to be a foundation for anybody to have a relationship with God that's close. In other words, it doesn't matter how close God wants to be with you or how close you want to be to Him. If you don't have this foundation in your life, You can't have an intimate relationship with God. What is that foundation? It is found in the scripture, Psalm 89, verse 7. Look at what it says. God is to be greatly feared. 
in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those who are around him. Now, I want you to look at the second part of that verse. God is to be held in reverence by all those who surround him. Do you know what he's saying there? You will never find God in an atmosphere where he is not held with the utmost of respect. Let me tell you when I first learned this. Back in 1996, I was asked to do a national conference in Brazil. It's a big conference. And I remember flying down there, praying all day Friday in my hotel room, going to the service that night, massive auditorium. I remember when we pulled up, you could actually hear the praise coming outside of this massive auditorium because it was almost a stadium. It was a stadium with a gap between the ceiling and the roof and and the upper wall. And you could hear what was going on outside in the parking lot. And I remember walking in, and they immediately put me on the platform. And I'm looking out in a sea of people. There's not an open seat that I can see in this massive auditorium. And I remember these musicians were so amazing. I mean, they were some of Brazil's finest. And yet, you'd think it'd be a wonderful, wonderful presence and atmosphere of God. But yet it wasn't. It was dry. There was no presence of God. Now, let me explain something to you here. The Bible talks about two types of the presence of God. The first is His omnipresence. That is where David said, Lord, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to the highest mountain, you're there. If I make my bed in the lowest valley, you're there. That is the presence of the Lord that never leaves us nor forsakes us. The other presence of God that the Bible speaks about is his manifest presence. Do you remember Jesus saying in John 14, I will manifest myself to you. The word manifest simply means to bring from the unseen into the realm of the seen, the unheard into the realm of the heard, the unknown into the realm of the known. It is when God reveals himself to our senses that presence which is a very real aspect of christianity was totally absent in that massive auditorium now i'm puzzled i'm like this is a believers conference what's going on here so i prayed under my breath i said god where is your presence i don't get it and god like opened up my eyes and i started noticing the people were kind of standing there like this with their arms crossed, looking around. Others had their hands in their pocket, looking down. Other people were fumbling through their purses. Other people were whispering to one another. Other people were walking in and out of the building to the concession stands in this auditorium like it was an event. And I thought, okay, this will calm down, but it doesn't. They go through all the worship, and then the leader comes up to the podium and begins to read scripture. And I'm still seeing people kind of looking around like this with their arms crossed, looking down, disinterested. I'm hearing actually a little mutter from people whispering to one another. People are still getting up out of their seats and walking in and out. And now I'm getting angry. Okay, I'm talking really angry. Texas spitting angry. Do you understand? And so by the time they introduced me, I remember walking up to the podium and I just leaned, my, my interpreter was sitting over, or standing over here, and I just leaned my arm on the podium and just stared at him and didn't say a word. Now, when you're the Friday night speaker for the national conference in Brazil, and you've just been introduced, and you're not saying a word to them for about 45 seconds, but just staring at them, that does get people's attention. 
Because it's like all of a sudden the activity stopped on the platform and people are thinking, what's going on? And 45 seconds later, literally every eye now is on me in this place and it's dead silent. Finally, you stop hearing the muttering of people talking. And this is the first words I ever spoke in the nation of Brazil publicly. I didn't say, great to be here. Thank you for having me. I just looked at him and said, I have two questions. Question number one, if you are talking to somebody sitting across the table and the entire time you're talking to them, they sit there, got their arms crossed, looking around like if they're disinterested, they're looking down or they're whispering to somebody beside them, will you continue to talk to them? And they said, no. I said, what if you go over to somebody's house and every time you go to their house and you knock on their door, they open up the door and look at you and go, oh, it's you again. Come on in. Will you continue to go to that house? They said, no. I said, well, I have been on this platform for an hour and a half. There has been no presence of God in this place. Because God will never come into an atmosphere where he is not held with the utmost of respect. I said, if the president of your nation would have walked on this platform... He would have gotten ten times the respect you gave the Holy Spirit. I said, if Pele, because they are nuts about soccer down there in Brazil. I said, if your greatest soccer player in Brazil's history would walk on this platform tonight, you would have been on the edge of your seats, glued, anticipating every word out of his mouth. You have given no respect to the Spirit of God. And for the next 75 minutes, I talked to them about the fear of the Lord. After 75 minutes... I simply said, if you are in this place, you say you're a Christian, you belong to God, but you lack godly fear, stand up if you're willing to repent. 75% of that massive auditorium stands at his feet. As soon as they stood, the presence of God came into the building. It was amazing. I mean, the first time in almost two hours. Well, actually three hours. And I remember people started weeping all over that auditorium. And I was like... Oh, finally. And it lasted a few minutes and it lifted. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, lead him in a prayer of repentance. So I led him in a prayer of repentance. After we said amen on that, another wave of his presence came in. It was even more strong. And people are just weeping all over the auditorium. It lifts after three or four minutes. And the Holy Spirit then speaks to me and says, I'm coming one more time. Now, there is no way I can describe what happened that night. I still, up to just a couple years ago, get emails about it, okay? This is what happened. Within seconds of him saying that to me, I want you to imagine being at the end of the runway at LAX and a Boeing jet takes off right in front of you. That is the kind of violent wind that came into that building. Now, when that wind began to blow, the people started screaming. Now, can you imagine thousands of Latinos screaming? how loud that would be. That's right. The wind was even louder. And I remember I am standing on that platform and there are like goosebumps on top of my goosebumps. I am petrified, but it's weird. It's a good petrified. I don't know how to describe it other than saying it like that. I remember thinking this. John, you make one wrong move, you say one wrong word, you're dead. Now, 
Would that have happened? I don't know. But it did happen with a man and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They made a wrong move. This is New Testament. They made a wrong move in that atmosphere of God's presence, and they fell over dead. So, we'll just leave it there. Because let me tell you what really became real to me as I was standing there. Daddy did not come into this auditorium. The king came into the auditorium. There's a difference. Same God, there's, but there's times when we got to know him as daddy, and there's times he manifests himself as king. Okay? And I'm sitting there going, oh my God. Man, this wind lasts for 90 seconds. And I remember it just gradually subsided. And it left in its wake, people collapsed all over the auditorium, weeping. All you hear is weeping. And I'm standing there going, God, what do I do? And the Lord's like, I'm through with you. So I looked at the leader and I said, the platform is yours. And I, 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 I walked over to the seat and they whisked me out and put me in a car. A couple minutes later, they put the national singer, she was the one that did the solo that night, and her husband in the car and she's screaming. Did you hear the wind? Did you hear the wind? Did you hear the wind? And I said, oh, come on. Had to be a jet airplane flying above the building. I didn't want to say it. And then she looked at me. She says, what are you talking about? I saw fire all around the auditorium. And her husband quieted me down. He said, sir, it wasn't a jet airplane. I said, how do you know? He said, because there were security guards and policemen all around the outside of the, the big auditorium. He said, most, they're all union men. They're, most of them aren't even saved. He said, when the wind started blowing on the inside, they just came running in to our leader saying, what is the sound of this wind? He said, and I'm standing by the soundboard because of my wife's levels on her singing, and I'm looking at the decimal meters, and while the wind's blowing, the decimal meters are at zero, which means zero percent of that wind noise came through our sound system. I said, oh my God, take me to my hotel room. <laughs> and I remember I stayed up on the balcony of my hotel room till 1.30 in the morning worshiping God. I was in such awe of what happened. The next morning, you can't even believe what happened in the lives of those people? Because of one word, reverence. You see, for years I struggled getting into the presence of God. Struggled. And then one day I just stopped doing anything. I'd walk into my prayer class. I said, God, I want your presence. I don't want to just talk words into the air. And so I just started meditating on his greatness. On the awesomeness of my daddy. And all of a sudden... Bam, there's his presence. I thought, whoa. So the next day, I did the same thing. There's his presence. Boom. And after a few days of this, I went, wait a minute. This is getting a little too easy. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, what did Jesus teach his disciples when he taught them to pray? And I started reciting it. Our Father, which art in heaven, hall hallowed be thy name. There it is. Jesus taught his disciples. You can't come into the presence of God without reverential fear. So the question we have to ask today is this, what is the fear of the Lord? Don't you think that's a good place to start? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, first of all, can I say this? It is not to be scared of God. How can you have a relationship of intimacy, which is what he wants, with someone you're scared of? If you look at when the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, Moses delivers them out of Egypt. Where does he bring them to? Where, does he, where is his destination? It's not the promised land. Because look at what Moses said to Pharaoh. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. He wanted to go to the mountain before he went to the promised land. Because the mountain is where Moses tasted God's presence. At that bush that burned. 
And you know what's so amazing is just tasting that presence caused him to never want to go back to Egypt. You ever wonder why people flip back to the world so easily in church? You ever wonder why people get so worldly in church so easily? Because they've never really tasted the presence of God. If you look at Moses, he gets one taste of the presence of God. He never wants to go back to Egypt. He had the best life anybody could have on the planet. He lived in the most beautiful house. He had servants for everything. He never had to cook a meal. He never had to clean a toilet, make a bed. Do you understand? He could do whatever he wanted to. But yet he leaves it all because he wants the presence. That's amazing. I said, that is amazing. But if you look at Israel, what are they saying? I mean, their kids were put to death by the Egyptians. I mean, they're abused. They're working all their life to build somebody else's inheritance. And yet they come out and they're constantly saying, we want to go back. It was better for us. Why is that? Because Moses had that encounter with God's presence. Israel had a chance and they blew it. Because when God came down to introduce himself to Israel, like he had introduced himself to Moses, look at what Israel does. They run away because they're scared of God. And so Moses looks at him and says in Exodus 20, 20, do not fear. Everybody say, do not fear. And then he says, because God has come to test you. What's the test? That his fear may be in you so that you may not sin. Wait a minute. Do not fear because God's come to see if his fear is in you. That sounds like a contradiction. It is not a contradiction. He is differentiating between being scared of God and the fear of the Lord. There's a difference. The person who is scared of God has something to hide what does Adam do when he sins against God? He hides from the presence of the Lord. But the person who fears God has nothing to hide. He or she is scared to be away from God. So if you want the first definition of the fear of the Lord, here it is. It is to be scared. No, no, that's, that's not a strong enough word. It is to be terrified to be away from Him. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is apart from evil. Because we're terrified to be away from Him. Still with me? So what is the fear of the Lord? It's to venerate God. Now that's a big word. What does venerate mean? It means to honor, respect, esteem, reverence, to stand in awe of Him more than anything or anyone else. What happens when we do that? We love what He loves. We hate what he hates. What is important to him becomes important to us. What is not so important to him is not so important to us. So notice it says, we will hate what he hates. Are you seeing this? It doesn't say we dislike what he hates. We hate what he hates. I remember one day I was praying and I said, God, I don't get it. I pray hours, I read the Bible, I've devoted myself to your service, why isn't there a stronger presence on my life? Why isn't there a stronger anointing? That's another word for his presence on my life. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly, he said, because you tolerate sin, not only in your life and the lives of others. I was like, what? And then God brought me to Hebrews chapter 1, which is a record of the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And look what God the Father said to Jesus when he was raised from the dead. He said, because you have loved righteousness. And God said, stop. Every Christian loves righteousness. 
He said, but I didn't stop there. Because you've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, sin. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you more than your companions. God spoke to me and he said, you learn to hate sin the way I hate sin. And you'll see the presence of God increase upon your life. See, now let me make this statement because it needs to be said. Because legalistic, mean-spirited preachers have hurt this beautiful subject of the fear of the Lord. Because they come along and go, oh, this sinner's over there, I hate them. Because I fear God. No, you don't fear God because you love what he hates. Excuse me, you hate what he loves. God is in love with those people that are bound to sin. See, it's one thing. Now listen, it's one thing to hate a sinner. It's another thing to hate sin. Two completely different things. God is in love with those people bound to sin. He's passionately in love with them. But he hates the sin that's destroying them and holding them captive. So the person who fears God hates sin, not sinners. Good preaching. Why does he hate sin? Or why does she hate sin? Because they're in the holiness club? No, because they hate the bondage it brings into those beautiful people's lives. God died for those people. That's how much he loves them. You need to think about that. I don't care how mean, ugly, how rude a person is, how corrupt Jesus died for that person because that's how much God loves them. Always remember that. So the fear of the Lord isn't to hate people. It's to hate sin, which holds people into captivity. Good preaching. Amen. I'll help some of you. You know, um, anybody in here ever remember the evangelist back in the 1980s named Jim Baker? You remember him? Committed adultery, fraud, sentenced to prison. He read one of my books and said, will you come visit me when he was in prison? Now Moses said, God's come to test you that his fear is in you so that you may not sin. It's by the fear of the Lord we walk away from sin, not by the love of God. And I'll prove it to you. When I visited Jim, you know, he had gotten delivered his first year in prison. Really had a strong relationship with God. I mean, he spent hours reading his Bible. He would, had a prison fellowship. They had a church in there that was probably stronger than most of the churches I had been to back in that time. It was amazing. Right there in the prison. And I remember when he walked out into the visiting room, he grabbed me and held me and held me and held me and wouldn't let me go. And then he looked at me and he said, did you write this book? Or did a ghostwriter write it? I said, no, I wrote it. He said, we have so much to talk about. And the first thing he said to me is, he said, John, this, judge, er, this prison is not God's judgment on my life. It's his mercy. I said, what? He said, yeah, because if I kept living the way I was living, I would have ended up in hell forever. And God had mercy on me. It's like, whoa. So when I got comfortable enough to ask him some questions, this was my first question. I said, Jim, I want to know something. When did you fall in love with Jesus? Because I know you were so passionate, passionate about the gospel, passionate about Jesus. When did you fall out of love with him? He said, I didn't, John. I said, oh, come on, Jim. You committed adultery with Jessica Hahn seven years before prison even happened. You did this mail fraud. You did all this stuff. What do you mean you, 
you loved him. He said, John, I loved him every step of the way. I never fell out of love with him. So he sees now the confusion on my face. And he looks at me and he said, I love Jesus, but he said, I didn't fear God. And he said, there's millions of Americans like me. They love Jesus, but they don't have a fear of God in their life. See, it's the fear of the Lord we walk away from sin. Remember the Bible says in the New Testament, having the promise of his presence, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Remember the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the fear of the Lord. We need the love of God. We need the fear of God. We must know him as daddy, but we must also know him as king. We must know him as the Abba, father, but we must know him as the holy just judge. Those two aspects keep us healthy with him. Are you following me? Now, what is the evidence that somebody truly fears God? I mean, what's the evidence that you got electricity in a wall outlet? You put a blow dryer in it, you turn it on, and you get hot air. That's evidence that there's power, right? What's the evidence that somebody fears God? I'll tell you what it is. Number one, they will obey God instantly. Write that down. They will obey God instantly. Number two, they will obey Him if it doesn't make sense. Number three... They will obey him even if it hurts. Number four, they will obey him if they don't see a benefit. And number five, they'll obey him to completion. Now, I want to get to the scripture that I've been wanting to get to all afternoon. Here it is, Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. Now, everybody say the secret of the Lord. Okay, now let me ask a question. I want a response. Hands raised. How many of you have secrets in your life? Let me see, a, let me see your hands raised. All right, so do I have to pray for the rest of you for lying now? <laughs> Everybody has secrets. How many of you know there are not only bad secrets, there are good secrets? Okay, so let me help you again. How many of you have secrets in your life? So let me see a show of hands. Everybody. All right, now I can help you. Who do you share your secrets with? Acquaintances or intimate close friends? Come on, I didn't hear everybody. Yeah, intimate, close friends. Well, God is no different. You know what God's saying here? I share my secrets with my intimate, close friends. And by the way, my intimate, close friends are those who fear me. Let me show you. I'm not taking the scripture out of context. Look at this out of the New Living Translation. Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. You know what God is saying there? He's saying not everybody's my friend. Only those who fear me are my friend. Sure is quiet here. <laughs> Who were the friends of God in the Old Testament? Abraham and Moses. Why were they the friends of God? Because they feared him. If you look at Abraham, one night God comes and says, Abe, go kill the boy you love. I mean, God chose the hardest thing for Abraham to do, and he tested him. Okay, God never tests us with evil. He tests us with obedience. And God says, I want you to take that son you waited for for 25 years who you love more than anything or anyone else and go kill him. Go three-day journey and kill him for me. Can you imagine what Abraham went through that night? But yet look at the next scripture. It says, early the next morning, Abraham was on his way. 
Do you know how many times people look at you and go, oh, yeah, you know, the Lord's been dealing with me about that now for a couple years. You're bragging about your lack of the fear of God is what you're doing. Because the fear of the Lord is to obey him instantly. Do you see that? So Abraham goes three-day journey. God gives him this three days. Why? Because it's easier to do it when you've heard the booming voice of God the night before. But what about two and a half days of silence from heaven? And now you're looking at the mountain. You're going to put the most important person or thing to death in your life just because God said do it and didn't give you a reason. But Abraham goes to the mountain, builds the altar, ties up Isaac, and is ready to put him to death. And the angel of the Lord appears and the angel says this. Abraham, stop. Don't lay your hand on him. Because now I know you fear God. How does the angel know that Abraham feared God? Because he obeyed instantly. Because he obeyed when it didn't make sense. Because he obeyed when it hurt. Because he obeyed when he didn't see a benefit. And because he obeyed to completion. Abraham puts down the knife, unties Isaac. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Out of Abraham comes this Jehovah Jireh. The Lord, my provider. Do you understand God just revealed a facet of his personality to Abraham that nobody on earth had ever known before. Why? Because this is my friend. I just revealed the side of myself. Okay, let me just make this clear. All of you know me as a speaker. Some of you know me as an author. But Lisa Bevere, she knows me as husband. She knows me as father. She knows me as G-daddy. She knows me as athlete. She knows me as best friend. She knows me as lover. Can I say this? None of you will ever know me as lover. That is a facet of my personality. Only she will know. Why? She's the closest person to me on this earth. Do you understand that God just revealed a facet of his personality? Jehovah Jireh. He just revealed a facet of his personality to Abraham. Nobody had ever known on the earth before because Abraham's my friend. Now if you look at the relationship dynamic between God and Abraham, it's amazing. Because one day God says, should we do what we're planning on doing with Sodom and Gomorrah without first talking to our friend Abraham? He comes down. He says, Abe, we're thinking about blowing up these two cities. What do you think? Abe goes, what? My nephew's over there. So he goes, okay, God, you wouldn't blow up the cities if there was 50 people, would you? And God goes, excellent idea. Okay, we will not blow up the cities. Glad we talked to our friend Abraham. But then Abraham goes, with there isn't 50. Okay, how about 45? You wouldn't blow them up if there was 45 righteous people. God goes, another good idea. And so Abe talks God down to 10. He figures there's got to be 10. My nephew's one. All I need is nine more. But there isn't 10 godly people in the city. Now this is what is amazing. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah was buying, selling, giving in marriage. They were planting, harvesting. What it basically is saying is life was great. If there is a God, he doesn't mind our lifestyle. They were 24 hours away from being obliterated, and they were clueless. That's not what's scary. What is really scary is this. The Bible says Lot. Everybody says Lot. Lot is a righteous man, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Okay? Lot is 24 hours away from being obliterated. And yet he's as clueless as the world. So here's Abraham, one righteous, godly, born-again man. Here's Lot, another righteous, godly, born-again man. I'm going to modernize this. One godly, born-again man knows what God's going to do before he does it and helps God decide how he's going to do it. The other born-again man does not know what God's doing, is as clueless as the world. Why? Why doesn't he know and why does Abraham know? 
Because Abraham's the friend of God, therefore he knows the secrets of God. Lot is not the friend of God, even though he's a born-again man, even though he's righteous. Therefore, he doesn't know the secrets of God. That's the difference. Are you getting this? See, here's the thing. Do you want to be a friend of God? Or, you, or do you just want to be one of the citizens in the kingdom? That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. See, if you look at Moses and Israel, they're all saved. Israel came out of Egypt, which is the type of the world. They ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. They followed that rock, which was Christ, the Bible says. But yet they only knew God by the way he answered their prayers. Moses knew his ways. Moses knew what God was going to do many times before he didn't. Moses even changed God's mind twice. But yet Israel was clueless. They only knew God by how he answered their prayers. Do you know how many Christians there are in America? Their relationship with God is limited to how he's answered my prayers. But yet God wants to be a friend of yours. God wants you to know his secrets. But without the fear of the Lord, you can't know his secrets. Because if you look at what Jesus said, I'll bring it to the New Testament. Jesus said to his 11 closest friends, 11 closest disciples, he said, no longer do I call you servants. You know what that means? At one time, they were looked at and merely regarded as servants. Isn't that what that means in English? No longer do I call you. It means at one point I did call you. Now, why does God do that? Why does he keep us at a servant level, even though we're heirs? Remember the Bible says in Galatians 4.1, as long as this, the heir is a child, he differs nothing from the servant. Why does God do that? For our protection, because he loves us so much. He doesn't want what happened to Ananias and Sapphira happening to us. They got a little too familiar with God. Are you with me? Yeah. See, let me give you an example. Um, when I first started Messenger International, Lisa and I, Back in 1990, I thought, you know what, I'm going to run this ministry different than the way I'm used to other people running ministries. Every employee is going to be my best friend. Well, that's stupidity, okay? I'm just telling you. That's, that's a very immature leader making a decision. So the first guy I hire, I make him best buddy. I'm playing ball. He hangs out at the house. We're having dinner together. Hangs out over our house for Thanksgiving. It was really good. It was great having one of your employees as your best friend. Until a year later where I had to bring a little minor correction to him because he was being extremely rude to people at our resource table. And I said, hey, John, these are God's sheep. You need to be, his name was John, you need to be a little bit uh, nicer to them. And he looks back at me and just starts railing on me. He says, yeah, but you're this and you're that and this is your motive and this is why you do this. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh. And I looked inside, I said, God, what do I do? And God said, fire him. <laughs> so I let him completely vent. And I said, John, you can't work for Messenger International anymore. i got to release you. I just can't have this. So he storms out. He's mad. I'm crying because I really cared for the guy. And I thought, man, how did this happen? Well, three months later, I get a phone call from him. And he says, God's never spoken to me like he's spoken to me in the last three months. I had not talked to him for three months. He said, John, I lost sight of the place God had placed you in my life. I lost sight of the fact that you were the leader he put over me. I treated you as common. I treated you as ordinary. I did the same with Lisa. I lost sight of the place God put me in your life. I was to serve you. He said, I'm so sorry. I said, would you come back and work for us? He said, absolutely. He came back. We never had problems again. Now today I have, you know, close to 30 employees. And the policy I have today is I don't share my heart 
with my employees until I know they're very established and where, where God's put them in my life. And, I, and I, you know, they know what the place that they have because I don't want to destroy them. See, I almost destroyed that young man. I don't want to destroy my employees. So I, I'm not scared. I want everybody to know what's in my heart because I'm, I'm an open book guy. But I know to protect them, I can't do that. You understand? But then once I know they're very established in who they are, I bring them in. Some of my employees are my closest friends. Okay? Are you with me? So this is what God says to us. You're an heir. You're saved. You're in the kingdom. But as long as you don't know who I am and you really don't know who you are, the fear of the Lord, i got to keep you at that level. But once you're really established in who I am and in who you are before me, the fear of the Lord, I can bring you in as a friend. Because I don't want happening to you what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. You seeing that? So that's what Jesus says. He says, no longer do I call you servants. Why? For a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. The master's ways, secret wisdom. But I have called you friends. So here's his universal declaration to the entire church. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, you are my friends. All right, this is verse 14. You are my friends. Now, we write books about it. We preach sermons about it. We sing songs about it. But yet we never finish the sentence. Because do you notice the word if? If is a condition. In other words, listen carefully. If you don't fulfill the condition, you don't get the benefit. If I say to you, I'll pay you $2,000 if you work for me for a month. Then you come up to me, and you didn't work, and you say, where's my $2,000? I'll say, hey, man, I said I'd pay you if you worked. You didn't work, so you don't get the $2,000. Isn't that English? You are my friend's if. So we drop the if, and we drop the condition. Can I show you what the condition is? You are my friend's if you do whatever I command you. What is that? That is the fear of the Lord and trembling at his word. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Not everybody in the church is my intimate, close friend. Are you will? Are, are you here? But now listen. He passionately, listen to my words. Jesus passionately wants everybody in the church to be his intimate, close friend. But you're the one that determines the level of your relationship with God, not God. Therefore, draw near to God, and then He will draw near to you. Did you get that? Did you get that? I want every head bowed. I want every eye closed. Every head bowed. Every eye closed.